Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. It is election day. What? And I am on the road, on the ground, moving, making moves, doing a thing that we all do uh, out here, getting out the vote with some amazing candidates uh, and, and, and really pushing forward. Like, no matter what happens today in terms of, you know, outcomes and results, we actually already won. I don't know that a lot of people realize this, but the movement that has been built over the last several years, culminating really in the, the larger push the past two years, has already been, been, been breaking records and standing ground in a new way and forcing change. And there's no way that we're going to completely dismantle and change a system like this overnight. So we do not allow corporate entities, whether they are uh, more corporate leaning nonprofits or media outlets or whatever the case or individuals, candidates, electeds, whatever. We don't let them determine the narrative for us. Supporting candidates who are doing the work, supporting candidates who are getting out here, building in community with folks, supporting people who are working and organizing around issues that matter. That is the way of the wave of the future. That is the way we go. So you all know I've been focused real heavily here on what's going on in my home state of Georgia. I realized as I was driving this morning, I have, you know, I grew up with the with the with the background and the parents and in the, the spaces, movement spaces I did, but I realized living in Appalachia and living in the deep south has really strengthened my progressive resolve and activism. And that is something that is speaks to the people, the organizers and the places that we actually are. And when we're looking at progressivism and the way that these movements are shaping, we need to look to these areas and regions because there's a lot that's happening that is definitely not picked up on by traditional media. And so I have two interviews. One is a throwback interview to the primary uh, with my good friend Eric Robertson, who's now political director over at New Georgia Project Action Fund. And then another is a recent, more recent interview I had with a local political operative um, who is also a political commentator and has done work uh, with, with uh, I think, Univision. But um, but yeah, so check check this out. Like, share, subscribe to Lila Fanoa. Um, and definitely keep continuing to lift up the work of people around you. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about vote shaming, about, you know, engaging. Local elections absolutely matter. These state level elections matter, too. But we don't just simply, you know, give somebody our vote and line up to be another number to be counted. We have to be engaged and involved in the process because accountability starts before Election Day and it continues beyond Election Day. So I know that we all work, we grind, we do a lot of different things, but we got to find a way to help build together so that we can keep accountability in the process as we keep moving. So I'm going to leave you with that real quick. I'm going to get this episode to you. And, and, and we, we making history no matter what the, the headlines say, no matter what the pundits say, we done made history, we continue to make history, and we moving forward. So that's what we do. That's how we do it. And that's what we're going to keep on doing. Y'all, you heard? You know, yo, I'm I'm tongue tied. Like my kids is at home 
they out of school today they both hustling that's the tech staff they both hustling my sister it works in an electoral organization as well as i do and she's actually running a dialer today my brother works with an organization that does outreach and support to folks so kind of wrap around support type electoral work he's out here grinding today the whole squad the whole squad is on the move so anyway i'm gonna talk to y'all later check out this episode and share peace greetings everyone and welcome to another edition of the way of Fanoa. like i know y'all are like oh my god is she talking about georgia again yes i am because not only is it the hottest race in america it's really actually important to me because i live in georgia what um there's been a lot going on with this with this race uh and y'all i've been talking to you about it since the primary um but also you know it's really cool to bring in other people who you know are engaged in and know politics here locally and we don't always agree on everything so it makes for a good conversation um but i'm really excited today um because i have a guest with me chris uh, who has dibbled and dabbled some in politics. Yeah, he knows his way around around, around the thing. Um, Chris, can you introduce yourself to the guests and, and just tell us a little about yourself? Absolutely, and thanks for having Audience. me. <laughs> My name is Chris Perlera, or Perlera, if your R-rolling game is not very strong. And yeah, I've dabbled in politics on both sides of the aisle, and I'm a regularly occurring political analyst on Univision in Spanish-language television. That's right. Like I got, I got like a real legit, legit. Like I was trying to be, I was trying to be modest, but I forget that that Chris actually like has some real skills for you guys. We actually sat down and had a really good coffee uh, meeting not too long ago, and I was just like, "Wow, this is like a great person to talk to." So with eleven days left in the election cycle, I really wanted to pull Chris in just to kind of get some takes on what's going on here in Georgia and some of your insights. And like we just had our first um, debate. Uh, of the elect, the general election cycle, and there'll be one more next weekend. Just, you just, Chris, just thinking about just where we are right now, 11 days out, everything that's on the table, like what are kind of some of your like takeaways from just where the candidates are and what's going on in this election? Well, I love the fact that you brought up the debate because that's what I was talking about on air a few days ago. Okay. Um, they asked me, you know, well, how do you, who won the debate? And I told the the reporter, I said, Honestly, nobody really won. It wasn't really a competition. There was mm-hmm. um, there was no new information. We have a very clear and like image of who Stacey Abrams is and who Brian Kemp is, and they did not deviate from the public perception uh, in terms of the bases. So mm-hmm. right now, Republican base voters they absolutely have an ingrained, concrete opinion of who Stacey Abrams is. I don't think it's correct, but the Kemp machine has done an effective job in misrepresenting. Uh, Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams as somebody who's radical, which is a you know an interesting situation because I know from internal democratic politics that not everybody thinks that she's you know left enough that she is too moderate for some, and there are some very vocal individuals within democratic politics uh, on the full range of the spectrum that um, you know kind of question some of the decisions and positions she's held in the past because you know in all honesty she's a pretty moderate dem historically. But at the same time, Brian Kemp's campaign to call her a radical and like too extreme for Georgia's his words, it's um it has had the intended effect amongst his voters, and it's driving his voters to the polls. So we're in a really weird place. But um, to get back to the question of who won that debate, um, I think Ted Metz won only because no one had any <laughs> clue who he was and what he was about. Clearly, it was not on par with either candidate. 
Um, it, but I had never seen the man. I didn't know anything about his positions. So in terms of who benefited at all, uh, Ted Metz may go from, you know, 1% of the vote to two. Uh, the polls show him at three, but it's, it's like a 3% margin of error. So well, we're in a very curious time. And like you said, um, we have national attention. People, when they come into town, they talk to me. They ask me what I think is happening, which way I think it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, I, have, um, I have a very deep understanding of both campaigns, for better or for worse. And, uh, you know, so my, my vision, uh, my perceptions are very different, probably from some of the people that are just watching this kind of transpire on the outside, and they're not really engaged or have relationships with some of the actors behind the scenes. Right. Yeah. So that's the other reason why I want to talk to you. But I think you, you, you highlighted a really good point about the debate, right? About like, it wasn't like, oh my God, this was like an amazing win for one candidate or another. Like when we think about like debates, like because we've seen them mostly in the presidential election cycle, um, these are, this was very different in some ways because also like substantively, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was really designed to really like drive or push the candidates. It was like, okay, we got to have a debate. So here we go. Yeah, they were like presentations. Yeah, like, and, and actually the one thing that has thrown me off too, like with, with this election cycle is watching these debates. And I guess the same thing happened in a mayor election. But like watching these debates where the candidates are asking each other questions has this like, y'all aren't even really using this like time to ask like good questions. Like you're just using this for cheap shots to be able to make points and get your like op you know, opposition stuff out there, which I mean, strategically, I get why you would do that. But from an audience perspective of trying to watch a debate and the value, I just don't feel like any of the debates that I've watched um, locally, not, I won't say any of them, but some of the debates I've watched locally and this included, I don't know if they've really actually done anything like you were saying for the actual like viewer. Um, They make for good sound bites. (laughs) Excellent sound bites, but um, yeah, I just kind of I've seen debates where a candidate or an elected official that's running for re-election they take the chance to explain their sound bite or to explain why another opponent's sound bite doesn't make sense, and I mean real sense, not just trying to make up crazy stuff about you know based on their partisan affiliation. Um, you know, it, I was I was really hoping for a more in-depth explanation uh, on healthcare plans. Uh, in terms of healthcare access in Georgia, which of course we we know exactly where Stacey Abrams stands, and we know that uh, Kemp has clearly a very opposing view, but he still has to tread carefully because rural healthcare is such a big issue for Republican voters, with the hospital mm-hmm. situation being what it is. Right. But at the same time, Ryan Kemp has never been recognized as a policy wonk. No one would ever call him that. Right. He's the type of guy that he knows an industry leader and he'll trust that person, which a lot of us are. There's nothing wrong with that. Stacey Abrams is without a doubt policy wonk to the extreme. She can yeah. wax policy with you for days. Now that would put you out of touch with the average voter, but there, there was a lot more substance that could have been had while still maintaining that level of dialogue appropriate for a general audience. And that just didn't happen. Right, 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 right. And so like, just, I just feel like that's been a part, a problem, I think across this, cycle is really because as being able like how do you tra- and I, I think that's just a problem Dems have had in general right and how they've been able to lose otherwise winnable races is that we, we you know folks can get very wonky and very these language and these words like I was just telling a friend recently like I mean 
was thinking about even just with, with candidates at the local level, like we talk about all oh, the progressives and who's a progressive and who's not. And when you sit down and talk to some folks, they may actually, they may not have identified as progressive. When you listen to like what their ideas or what they want to do in a particular local office, it actually may, you'd be like, oh, well, you're actually kind of progressive. Did you know that? Because like we have these concepts and ideas and this like this high flute language that we can use sometimes to have these discussions that other folks who are just regular voters or just regular people trying to run for office are not necessarily as you know uh, well versed in. So I think what you were, what you're what you're highlighting on is that there is a way, and and Stacey has done I think a decent job of trying to do that. She can be very wonky, which is an appeal for some of us too. But at the same time, she she is trying to figure out how do I connect all these facts and figures and information to actually resonating with voters. And you're right about the the rural health issue because what is it? Eight hospitals have been closed in the past few years. Um, I, I have no idea what the number no, is. I, think, I just I think know it's that something, it's, um, yeah. it's a crisis. Like they, yeah. that's, um, in terms of conservative politicians and conservative voters, there is not a conversation that you will have in this cycle amongst anyone that will be missing a, a note or a deep conversation about the, stat, the status of healthcare access in general, like literally finding a hospital in your geographic region right. and then the ongoing existence of current hospitals. Um, right. It's just... You know, it, healthcare is is the topic, but depending on what party you belong to, you're um you're you're singing a really different song. Right, 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 absolutely. So just thinking about just like you know this 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 final eleven days and stuff like that, like and like you mentioned, you know, having worked on both sides of the aisle, knowing kind of where you are now, you know, politically and the work you've done, kind of what's your take on where we are in this cycle and 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 and, and the final push. To, to election day. Sure. Um, so I'm in terms of the actual election result and where we're headed. Um, you know, we in politics we're mostly going off of historical data, and then in this case we're going off of early voting turnout. And so far, it's you know, and if the if the trend keeps going, it's not looking good for Stacey, only because the amount of Republicans versus Democratic voters based on what primary they turned out in is the Republican voters are exceeding Abrams voters by a, a, enough margin to put Kemp into victory. So something has to change. And that change could be just mo much more Democratic voters coming out on election day or in the remaining days of early voting. Mm -hmm. But the ratio of Republican votes to Democratic votes are outpacing Democratic votes. And that's not a good thing for the Stacey Abrams campaign. And honestly, that's not a really good thing for Georgia because it's going to prove that the Trump-style Republicans, um, that they, they had a, an effective win, which is really disappointing uh, just because, you know, for me personally, but for a lot of other individuals out there, regardless of whether the, where they align in the political spectrum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, and there has been a lot of conversation about that data and those numbers and what it's looking at and looking at the percent vote share. The one thing that I found interesting, my question has been, which I haven't had time to actually research you all, so if I can find the answer, I'll definitely post it up. I don't know if Chris knows either, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold him to a firm. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out, like, like, you're, you're right. Like, we have been seeing from some of the, the data based on what primaries people have voted in, um, which was really interesting. I had a really interesting conversation about this, too, about Democrats who pulled Republican primary ballots, uh, commenting on a thread of mine on Facebook last night. Oh, uh, yeah. I saw that thread. I was going to comment, yeah. and I, I refrained because it, it gets real wonky. 
it gets really, really weird. And I was like, okay, so everyone said, so you guys, like, I posted a thread and I was just like, because someone on another post was like, well, I'm a Democrat. They, they got really upset because we said something and they were like, well, I'm a Democrat, but I have, but no, they were, because they were talking about voting in Republican primaries and we're like, well, you're a Republican, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, no, I'm a Democrat, but I pull a Republican ballot because of X, Y, and Z. Right, right. It's like, huh? So what I did was I posted it as my status and I posted like that thinking emoji, like, hmm. And everyone thought that that's my strategy. And so people started chiming in, explaining why they do it. I was like, this is actually kind of fascinating. So I don't know what actual percentage that is of actual people, but that was something. That I know I the answer to this question. Okay. It's very low and it's, it's fairly easy to find out. So, and, and I'll say some democratic or progressive leaders have a bad taste in their mouth after Ooh. Trump's primary victory, because that was definitely a reoccurring theme where you had plenty of both prominent and just, you know, rank and file regular voters that they said, oh, I voted in the Republican presidential primary and I voted for Donald Trump because if he makes it, he's going to be the easiest to beat. And then he won, not just once in the primary, but then he won the presidency. And then the, I would definitely feel bad if I voted for Donald Trump in the, in the Republican primary and I was a Democrat right. and then Trump won, I grossly miscalculated that. So there's, there's that group of people, but it's not a significant number. Most people hold this misconception, especially in states that don't have a party registration affiliation. Mm -hmm. I saw that on your thread, but it's, it's true in general. They just firmly believe that they belong to one party and they're not allowed to participate in the votes of the other. I was like, mm -hmm. we have open primaries mm -hmm. in Georgia. Um, I don't know for how long, but definitely for, for a, for some time. And, um, you know, yeah, some people do, but it's very rare because they, it's almost, it's almost like a moral quandary because, um, they, they don't want somebody to go back and, and, and ask them as like, oh, well, you voted in a Republican primary. Um, and then there's, there's some people that, that just live in areas of, uh, of the state that there are only Republican primaries. There are no Democrats ever. And, uh, they may show up in uh, you know, vote builder and whatever system you're using, they're going to show up as super Republicans, Republican super voters, but they could be voting for a Democrat every single general election. It's just a intrinsic flaw in the system because we have a secret ballot. Um, but yeah, it's small amount of people mostly because they just, um, well, what, what generated the conversation was this little app that folks are using to like be able to text their friends vote with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it does. And it's like, people were like, well, so-and-so, my comment on someone else who's like a super devil was like, you're actually in my app as a Republican. <laughs> and, and you can look when they voted, when they pulled, you know, a ballot in which, and, it, and that's what it is. And that's what it said mm -hmm. based on what ballot you pull in a primary, which is, which is really interesting. But the other, the question I actually had that I was like, I'm not sure, is just thinking about when we're talking about the early voter turnout, because we do know that you know, historically, when we're looking at early voting, you know, data, Republicans do tend to um, have an advantage, right, in terms of early voter turnout. Um, but my question was, has been for various folks, like, have we seen a narrowing in that gap? Like, if, even if they're surpassing, have we seen a narrowing in the gap, right? Um, I don't think so. I think it's been fairly steady. It's, it's I, fairly steady in the same yeah, way. Yeah, I haven't gotten, um, so, so I subscribe to... Well, sadly, I wish there were more Democratic kind of consultant and pollster newsletters, 
but for Ooh. whatever reason, there's not so many of any notable worth in Georgia that I'm aware of. I could, you know, if I'm mm -hmm. wrong, please tell me. Any any listeners, if you got a good source of a daily newsletter that summarizes democratic politics, Chris may have a new business venture for but, um, us. But uh... Republicans, <laughs> Republicans dominate that. They have like six yeah. newsletters, websites, and wow. uh, they're just sharing everything because they're super comfortable with it. But uh, this guy, uh, that I think he's actually half Asian. And um, he, he puts out a newsletter every day. I, I glance at it. And then one of the important things right now is that um, he has the early voting numbers broken down in that, in that kind of spread that we're talking about, like primary voters that are showing up again to vote in the general and early voting. And mm -hmm. that, that gap isn't significantly narrowing. It's kind of holding steady. But um, yeah, this is just from memory from glancing at it the last couple of days. I haven't gotten that newsletter yet, but I will keep an eye out and I'll I'll message you when I do. I'll just forward you that email so you can. No, that is, that sounds dope. Maybe I'll have to subscribe to it too because that is a question that I've been having. Is um, I've been having that question like, okay, because everyone's been saying it. I was like, but but are we seeing like because like in the primary, for example, right? Like, yes, Republicans had more people voting overall in the primary than Democrats, but we saw like a serious reduction in the gap, right, over over prior years. Yeah, absolutely. But we so had a big gap. We, we, we've had a, it was still a big gap, but it was like, it was a huge reduction compared to the even larger gap we've seen in prior prior primary cycles. So I was just wondering, like looking at that trend, were we seeing something similar from what you're saying? It sounds like no, but it would be definitely cool if you could send me that and look at that. So just, um, so just thinking about kind of what we need to do 11 days. Um, I don't know if Brian Kemp is as bad as he seems on TV and all his, uh, his, his, his merchandise and stuff, but, but <laughs> concerned about, you know, what a Brian Kent win would mean for us here in Georgia. I'm sure he's perfectly nice as an individual person one-on-one, -on -one. but like just policy-wise and thinking about what you were saying about, you know, a resounding victory for Trump-style Republicans and kind of the, the direction we've seen the Republican Party, I mean, arguably the Republican Party has been on a trajectory for some time because it hasn't tampered or, or dealt with this segment of the party um, that has now basically taken over. Like we saw the Tea Party coming in 2010 and it was like, okay, that's cute. But now it seems like that type of frenetic energy and just vitriol has taken over and is in control of the party. So I don't, I don't know. Like where do you see, not just with Georgia, but where do you see it's just going, just, just going as we move forward past the midterm cycle? So I see us going to a very dangerous place. And I say that not because of just the recurring theme of we'll call it Trump's Republican voter base, but more of the traditional Republican that they considered themselves moderate and that, you know, fiscal government style conservatives, but socially tolerant, not necessarily accepting. Or they might be moderate. You know, I make a very keen distinction between tolerance and acceptance um, but you know, they, they were willing to put up with the way society is today. Uh, but a lot of these, um, a lot of these Trump voters, you know, for better, or for worse, for various reasons, they, they, they feel left out, they feel assailed and they just don't want to put up with that anymore. And that's their emotional reaction. On the other side, you have these people that I just mentioned and they're totally okay with everything that has happened so far under the Trump presidency, only because they've been given what they were promised. And it's very representative of situations like the Supreme Court. 
where Republicans have been all about judicial positions for many years now. It's been a focus, of, a new focus, but it's been a renewed focus for some, some number of years, at least five or six years in terms of Georgia dialogues, but if not more nationally, uh, where they've been just trying to stack benches. So the fact that Trump got to appoint these very significant Supreme Court justices, like that is a huge win for your traditional Republicans who are going to just completely forgive any other ridiculousness that Trump has done because they got what they were promised. And that is very dangerous because it's just an, a complete erosion of what it means to be a Republican. And so you're, we're seeing a new breed of conservative voter develop right now and like what they're willing to sacrifice and what they're willing to accept. And those things are alarming. Um, it's just, I mean, the, you can go through numerous examples, but um, it's just very dangerous territory. Uh, they're willing to accept this kind of, you know, really polarizing, very aggressive positions on a variety of things just to get a handful of stuff that they've wanted for a long time. So that's nationally speaking. Um, right. In Georgia, a Brian Kemp victory, uh, again, is going to give the, um, the strategy, the validation of Trump style politics. Um, it's going to support that. So they're going to they're going to keep going depending on how close the victory is, which I, I do firmly believe it'll be a close victory, regardless of who wins. Yeah. Uh, Stacey Abrams, she had a, a unique opportunity in this election. She has a unique opportunity. Um, uh, Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, uh, they lost significant margins of Democratic voters in their last gubernatorial election in the statewide elections. Um, and so Stacey Abrams is, of course, she's well on track to make up the deficits left behind these white Democratic legacy candidates that they lost significant margins of Black and Hispanic voters. Uh, I think they performed traditionally with Asian voters. Um, so I, I firmly believe that Stacey will make that up. She'll grow that and she'll grow it to an extent that will surprise some and others will find it, you know, that they'll be expecting it. Um, the question is, how much push is she going to get out of the voters that really haven't shown up again since Obama's first or second election? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and whether or not they're going to bother coming out for, a, you know, an excellent black female candidate that is set to make a historic race uh, that's getting, you know, like you said, attention nationally. Uh, not just in this state. I mean, it's just all eyes are on us. So it's some very, very unique. You know, I always say like, I, I've never been around for business as usual in politics since I got involved in like 2012. Um, so I, you know, I, it's, it's really exciting, but it's also, um, it, it, we have the potential for it to be very depressing as well. We do, but you all, we have 11 days. I have said there is so much going on. You know, your girl is not even, I told y'all this several times, as much as I'm a party adjacent, I'm not really much of a party person. I'm an independent that caucuses with Democrats. Haha, <laughs> party reference. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, they're, they're, I definitely appreciate, you know, some of, the, some of the points and stuff you brought, Chris, to the table. Um, definitely something to reflect on in real I appreciate it that it's not superly like over rosy, over enthusiastic because there's real work ahead. It's not a foregone, you know, forlorn conclusion. It's not completely lost, but there's a lot of work that we need to do. So we'll see if it pays off. Absolutely. There's plenty of work and whatever the outcome of that work, I think that, um, 
you know, Democrats will absolutely have a victory, but it might not be the victory that they're looking for. Mm. Uh, but there'll mm -hmm. definitely be plenty to build on. Uh, and then the same question is out there for Republicans. They might get the victory that they want, but the question is, what, what will they build off of it? Right, right, right. Well, hopefully we'll get something regardless that is better for all of us here in the state of Georgia and not just, you know, particular segments of the population that are deemed more worthy than others. Um, yeah, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming and chat with me today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Awesome. So any just final thoughts about the election or anything else you got going on before we, you know, close our, our segment? Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, most important thing is, I guess, down ballot races. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't leave anything blank. That's a huge, huge struggle for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, if every single Democrat or every single Republican voted down ballot, it would significantly change the outcome of certain races that experience huge drop-offs. But I definitely have anecdotal information about um, Democratic voters having a slightly higher percentage chance of not voting down ballot uh, for whatever reason. And this is uh, through conversations with both Democratic Party operatives as well as Republican Party huh. operatives. And um, I don't know what the reason is, but... Um, it, it can change things. Um, I would say that, um, you know, don't, don't leave anything blank, but don't, don't vote without having a reason, even if it's just one issue. Um, you know, we, we have smartphones, we have internet, hopefully um, just really make a choice just because most people don't bother voting and it's incredibly sad. My family's from Central America and we grew up with government corruption and the military killing you. And it's really funny for me to say because I walk and talk and dress like most people here, but I'm like, guys, no, seriously, people were killing my family members, gangs were abducting and holding ransom. My family members and the government shot the teachers at the schools where my parents went. Like, it's like, mm. and they didn't have free and fair elections. We have struggles in our election system, but absolutely, I'm, I'm assuming your listeners are going to vote. But if you have a friend, that's the king. If you have a friend, make sure they vote, make a voting party, like get a little group together, go get some coffee, bring some donuts. That really works. I always bike to the polls with my girlfriend and we always have like 10 people with us and it's just a good time, but it really makes a difference when you make it a social activity and get those folks that don't vote usually. No, I like that. I like that. And I, and I can just see you guys. That's so cute. We bike to the polls. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really strong point about down ballots. I'm glad you brought that up because it was curious when I looked at the, the, like the counties, there are three counties here in Georgia that flipped red to blue first time for Hillary in 2016, but the down ballot, you know, some of the down ballot state house race folks did not win those races. Um, you know, in Henry County in HD 111 um, and up in, uh, there were races up in, I can't remember the, 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 the districts now off the top of my head, but up in Gwinnett as well. Um, like they, those people did not, those people, either there were no challengers or they didn't win the races, but like the county itself voted for Hillary. But then, like you said, when you look at the numbers, that there's a complete drop off, there's a complete difference. Even with some of the statewide races, we see mm -hmm. that too. So yeah, like the public service commissioners, secretary of state, yeah. attorney general, like everything after the governor and the senators, there's like a huge drop off. And um, yeah, it's just really, really disappointing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate talking to you today. Absolutely. Looking forward to doing it again. Awesome. Definitely.
we'll definitely have to check back after the actual election, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, or election night. Election or night election commentary night. is always really fun. Election night commentary. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. <laughs> Thank you so much, y'all. This is Chris. And uh, stay tuned for more. Peace. I am joined once again by my good friend, Eric. Um, always willing to hop on the line with me and chop it up and talk a little uh, of politics and, and a bunch of other stuff. But today we're once again coming back to you talking about uh, Georgia politics and particularly, you know, our, our, our governor's race. Um, you know, our governor's race has been in the headlines for various different reasons we have. A bunch of folks on the right who who hate who hate Delta and and want us to uh, uh, make sure that 13 people can keep their NRA discount um, and and you know folks have seen the headlines the Battle of the Stacys it sounds so dramatic like an 80s uh, teen movie like the Heather's or something um, but 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 what's really been interesting in this conversation particularly as we look at Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans and this issue of electability. But 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 also this notion that one is a better candidate for the general um, that, that has come up a lot in reference to Stacey Evans, despite Stacey Abrams being the clear front runner, um, as, as discussed by or as evidenced by recent polling and and just the, the, the difference between the two campaigns and how they're reaching out to voters in the state. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me and, and, and taking some time today. Totally happy to be here. Things are really uh, picking up in the uh, electoral arena, and it's um, like you said. There's just uh, always something to talk about, and uh, this this week is no exception. So, Eric, you've you've been in this this arena for quite some time, and you know you definitely have a good lay of the land. Like as we discussed in our first conversation, you I think you had the the the, the margin between Doug Jones. And Roy Moore, like exactly dead on correct. So I'm 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 going with your your judgment and your ability to look at the statistics and, and analysis and dig in there. Let's talk about this poll that came out. Um, what's been about a week or so now? Uh, Mason uh, Dixon. There was a poll that came out. You know, breaking down kind of where all the candidates stand in relation to each other. Um, it seems like there's a tight race. You know, if 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 the Race were to be between uh, Casey Cagle and Stacey Abrams. It's rather tight with with Cagle with a slight lead, um, but Stacey's blowing the rest of the Republican candidates. Well, Stacey Abrams is blowing the rest of the Republican candidates out of the water. But somehow she's not electable. I tell you what, I the next person I hear say that I I may go postal on them because I I just don't. This race is becoming more and more of, uh, of people just saying what they wish was true, you know, uh, and and the people out there like that are still trying to somehow parse uh, that Stacey Evans is more electable than Stacey Abrams. I, I mean, it's getting really close to where those people will be just transparently biased, racist, whatever you want to call it, and, and that the fact that they cannot, they just cannot bring themselves to acknowledge the fact that in every metric, every metric, fundraising, uh, campaign uh, scale, uh, uh, name ID, I mean, all of these factors, and the poll shows it, 
Stacey Abrams is the clear front runner in both the primary and in matchups with these Republicans. She beats every single Republican except for Casey Cagle, and she's only behind him, down five points from him. And yet you still have folks out there who uh, – and it's more of a whisper campaign at this point. Very few people are, uh, are, not, not, are willing to be as crass as to say put out something on Twitter or Facebook anymore saying that uh, Stacey Evans is more electable than Stacey Abrams. But you, there's a pronounced whisper campaign – uh, among people who have a vested interest in um, the narrative that Stacey Evans is the is the the candidate to, that's going to win or that can win or best able to win, um, because she is following the model of every failed Democratic campaign for governor since 2002. Right. And the same people running her campaign or who are behind the scenes sort of, uh, uh, you know, orchestrating her campaign are the same people that have run these failed campaigns every four years uh, since 2002, which, and for people that don't know, that strategy is, number one, to raise money, have no field operation, nobody out knocking doors for you, nobody having direct voter contact, but saving up a mountain of money and then a few weeks out from the election, go up on TV with as much money as you, uh, spending as much money as you can and try to win over uh, a sector of the white electorate that has been lost to Democrats, um, you know, since basically the, um, the Dixiecrats figured out that they were Dixiecrats that they weren't really Democrats, that they were actually Republicans back after, uh, after the 2002 election. And they, the, the strategy has always been to, to find this one issue, and, it's all, and for the last few election cycles for governor, it's been the issue of education is, all, is, is seen as this silver bullet that's somehow going to get Tea Party, birther, racist, misogynistic, anti-gay, anti every good thing in this world, reactionary white people to vote for Democrats because they agree with their position on education and that somehow will in theory trump their allegiance to this, you know, racist reactionary agenda, will trump their uh their obsession with uh, assault rifles, will trump their obsession with all these conspiracy theories and, and uh, you know, the, the Alex Joneses of the world and all this stuff. Somehow we're going to talk about Hope Scholarship, and that's going to cause all these folks to say, you know what, I'm not really a bigot. I'm not really, uh, you know, uh, somebody who believes that billionaires should run our country and our state in their interests. I'm going to go with Stacey Evans because she – I agree with her on education – if you think that sounds absurd, it is. Well, I, you know, I think you raised several really good points and definitely about the Whisper campaign. I did see there was one piece that I did read like earlier, earlier this week um, that was in the Southern Political Report, um, an online blog or newsletter. Um, and and, and it, did, it did make the just blatant statement that Stacey Evans was the stronger general election um, you know, candidate without any explanation, without any reference point, without anything. And here's the thing, right? 
you know, everybody wants to see a good competitive race. Good, good, clean competition. You know, it makes for good candidates. It's not divisive. It's not nasty. It's if it's if, we, if people are actually sticking to you know to their issues, distinguishing where important and running the best race possible. It's really good for everyone involved because it gets people excited and engaged and involved, right? However, what we have here is, like you pointed out, instead of building the best possible operation to reach the maximum amount of people, you do have this insinuation, you do have this doubt that's being shaded at Abrams, whether it's because, you know, she's blowing through so much money. Well, she's also reaching more. We just read a, I just read a piece um, out of Athens that talked about how the Abrams campaign actually had more of a presence and field on the ground in that region, you know, to actually engage voters as compared to her opponent. So that's the type of stuff that we're seeing. She was just down in Columbus, you know, with, with volunteers and stuff too. So, so that's the type of stuff that we're seeing in comparison, right? And, and you, you hit it on the head when you talk about the, this antiquated strategy. You know, people talk about, you know, these two different strategies and we just got to see which one pans out. We already know which one does not work. We already know what doesn't work. We've already watched it fail for the last, you know, what, what, since 2002, so what, 16 years now? We've already seen the massive, you know, losses at the national level with thousands of Democrats losing thousands of seats nationwide, trying to figure out some way to reclaim, you know, that lost voting block. What, what we need to do is shift to a new way of thinking, organizing, and embracing voters. No one is saying don't talk to white voters because they're white. That's ridiculous, right? What people are saying, and I know you and I have talked about this as well, is you invest in the, the people who actually make up the demographic, you know, who reflect your party base, right? So you invest in talking to voters who are underrepresented, who have been left out of the process. You bring them into the process. You get them to vote. I, I think you sent me something talking about if we could get turnout above 2014 levels closer somewhere closer to 2016 turnout levels here in georgia that really changes the game in terms of what we're looking at in terms of you know who can do what going into the general election and there's so much that just isn't like you said it's just not panning out logically and with facts i get people really passionate and they want the person they want or they just simply don't like abrams whatever their rationale is but that's not like realistic if we're talking about what it takes to win and what it takes to win is a lot more than, oh, someone's telling lies on me or, oh, they're being mean or it's all their fault that I got embarrassed on social media. That's not going to cut it. And if you think that's going to cut it against Casey Cagle, who is, you know, by far the Republican front runner from what we've seen thus far, you're sadly mistaken. And the Republican Governors Association clearly is already, you know, lining up their lame attacks, you know, who, Stacey who like I mean it's 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 not going to work and so we definitely need something more so I I know that you are transitioning you know roles but I was just wondering some of your thoughts about you know we've talked about this a little bit what 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 it does take to really engage voters here you know in the south in general but here in Georgia in particular what are we looking at well to give to go back to your sort of the earlier point um you know uh, there's a, some anonymous white, wise person once said, you have the right to your opinion, but you don't have the right to your own facts. Mm. And the, the fact is, it, it, the people that say what you said, in that, and I, I don't 
have a subscription. I think that's a, one of those paid subscription magazines or something. I it, I didn't see that. But people that say that, and then they don't have one statistic, one single issue, you know, no polling, no metric to actually demonstrate that their idea is valid. And that should should make people think, okay? So just to give an idea that between the difference between 2014 and 2016, obviously those are higher turnout, you know, governor uh, uh, presidential races always have higher turnout than governor's races. That's just a fact uh, that we live with. But what it does reveal is that there are there were 700,000 more people willing to vote for Hillary Clinton, who's obviously by any stretch to the left of Jason Carter, uh, and at least in the style of campaigns that they ran and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm not trying to bash Jason. I'm just saying he ran a, a you know, kind of a centrist campaign um, that seven, there were 700,000 more people that turned out in 2016 to vote for a candidate who was more progressive. So if we're talking about, and Jason Carter only lost by 200,000 votes. So right. if it's, it's not that the votes aren't there, it's, it's that you're not getting the, getting this election into people's minds that an election is happening. And that election, this election is very important. And this is why these, this, the, you know, and so, in, in, in my personal, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the strategy that I think basically is the is the is what you have to do in order to make numbers like that happen is you have to have a massive field operation, and that means that uh, hundreds or you know of people, thousands of volunteers knocking on doors, having actual conversations having real conversations about the issues that are important to people. And through that, you clarify to people that the governor's race impacts those issues and how it connects to what the, you know, when people are, if people are concerned about healthcare, you can, you talk about, you know, Medicaid expansion and, you know, regulating um, prescription drug prices. Uh, you, you talk about, uh, you, if, you, if you're talking about transportation, you talk about, you know, funding MARTA, but all of these are progressive core issues. And if you can get people to make the connection that all of those issues are more to their benefit than the Republican agenda of cutting services, cutting taxes for rich people, and then cutting services for working class people, um, cutting things that people need, like, you know, cutting education, cutting Medicaid, uh, cutting tra uh, tra transportation. If you if, if if you can get people to to see that 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 they are the party of the things that do not do one damn thing for you, versus the candidate whose policies will uplift you and your family and your uh, your friends and your neighbors and the, your kids will go to better schools and you'll have access to health care and all these things and that then then the election then those people will come out and they will vote right. you know it's there's no magic 
to people not voting, they don't vote because, A, they don't know that uh, there's not enough in in their consciousness that the election is going on. And two, the most powerful thing is they don't have a compelling issue to come out and vote for. And if if, if you give them a sense that you embody what they think is a better direction for this state, then our next governor will be Stacey Abrams. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. And I think if you look around what we, you know, people are talking about, well, she's uh, Stacey's burn rates. Burn rates is is this pejorative term that people like to throw around because they, 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 you know, it's one of the, 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 uh, you know, kind of consultant class terms of trade kind of thing, whereas you're talking about this candidate is burning through way more money than they should be at this point in the campaign. <laughs> they're burning and, more um, money than they're paying them. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah to, to a degree, yeah, but the, the, the real burn rates, the real what a burn rate really looks like is when you're paying for more consultants and you're paying for uh, to people to make commercials for you and you're paying for TV and you're not paying people to go out and talk to voters and, and, and making these issues and making the case to the people of Georgia that we need, that we need a governor and that this, 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 this is a campaign that can actually win and can actually improve their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really strong point. And I, and I think even the way like you and others who do get out there and try to explain the mechanics and like, because we will hear, hear people who are supposedly the experts, right? You know, the campaign, the strategists, the consulting class. Well, some people use all these terms and it sounds so smart and like they know what they're talking about and they must know. And so either it turns people off from participating in the process altogether or it gets people only lining up a particular way. But when you, when you explain it and break it down and start talking about, you know, this is the difference of people actually investing in people, right? In the people we're, we're hoping are going to turn out to vote versus, you know, putting money into these other systems that aren't necessarily going to benefit people directly, but, you know, it'll benefit uh, uh, in terms of, you know, trying to buy, you know, ad space that benefits someone's particular set of pockets, you know, consultants that that benefits another set of pockets that doesn't necessarily move voters the same way that getting out there directly having people knocking on doors and we knock on all the doors like no one's saying don't knock on doors don't knock on doors of people who might not actually vote you know a particular way you have the conversations with folks but you got to have a way of not burning out your your, your staff and your volunteers and, and and understanding kind of who you should be turning out like you, 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 you don't want to invest. You don't want to do what the Hillary campaign did and accidentally turn out uh, uh, supporters for your opponent either. Um, you know, like, like, like there's a way to look at all of that and really engage. But I think one thing that you talked about is like how you get people is talking about the issues, not trying to appeal to their sensibilities and, oh, look, I'm a better alternative than those people. When we're really looking at what's happening right now with the candidates that are running on the Republican side, the issue that they're choosing to promote, the interest that they're choosing to promote, there is no there is no middle ground. They're choosing to run, you know, Trump type campaigns. You know, you have Kemp look talking about criminal immigrants or, or criminal aliens and stuff like that. And you have Cagle really hamming it up for the NRA and the others are falling in line behind. Like they're not trying to be the moderate Republican 
uh, 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 you know, type of 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 of, of uh, candidate, they're really going to that that hard right corner. They might bring it in a little bit, but they're not they're 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 not trying to find any you know common ground. They're not worried about trying to win over Democratic voters. They're going to the people that they know are their base. They're pulling on the strings. It doesn't matter that they are not funding education properly. It doesn't matter if they're they're against expanding Medicaid, which would benefit so many folks. Like when we're talking about reaching voters, whether they're rural or urban, white or black or Latino or whatever, like we need to be talking about values and, and, and our values as, as people who are Democrats or Democratic voters, you know, people who vote Democrat, like we need, that's what we need to be focused on. Not trying to find some way to make ourselves be appealing to people who would otherwise support a Kegel or a Kemp. Like there's such a wide chasm there, you know what I'm saying? Between those people who are okay with what they're saying and doing and then us. And I don't really see like, besides sticking to those issues, I don't see how people, you know, waste time trying to appeal to folks who think, you know, it's okay to have um, misleading bias training, you know, like out in Barrow County, um, where you have folks who are Islamophobic and anti-Arab coming in and instructing, you know, your law enforcement officers. Like there's such a wide gap <laughs> and th on those issues that I don't know that we can, you know, kind of bridge the divide there and, 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 and appeal to folks. Like those are not the voters we're necessarily going to win over, but people who are interested in hearing really um, sane conversations about education, healthcare, infrastructure, you know, things of that nature will be more inclined to also follow someone who's willing to stand strong in what they believe in. So. Totally. Totally. I mean, and, and, and I think we, you know, this is, people will call this hyperbole, but I, I think it's really true. The fact is, is that we can spend from now until election day and not have one single persuasion conversation with a Republican voter and win the election. Okay. Mm -hmm. We don't have to talk to the right wing. And of course, that's not saying we don't, but I think at the end of the day, uh, it's, you know, um, on election day, if we spent six months uh, running ads that that's really motivated by, uh, by this notion that, you know, you got to peel off uh, a chunk of the hard right, the hard right, not the moderates. The hard right, you've got to peel off a chunk of them in order to win the election. And you spend your time um, messaging to them. And even if you're not being, a, you know, a, you're not doing right wing messaging, but you're, 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 you're moderating and watering down uh, core populist progressive issues that resonate with everybody out of this, this uh, backward notion that that curry will, you know, curry favor with these, uh, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh, hard right, Fox News watching ideologues, um, rather than talking to the 700,000 people who didn't show up uh, on, in 2014. Right. For what, why did they not show up? Why did they show up for a more progressive candidate in 2016? You know, if the, if, if, Tacking to the middle is what turns people out. You know, um, the base is there, 
And so, you know, if you spend your time trying to peel off that, that right wing, a uh, chunk of that right wing block, that white supremacist, you know, block, then, and you're, that's why people sit out elections, is, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. People sit out elections, they don't vote for Jason Carter because they don't, being a Democrat and being a partisan Democrat or, you know, being the Democrat is not enough. Okay. People voted for Hillary for a whole number of reasons. A, they were scared shitless of Trump, but uh, uh, you know the fact is is that um, she she had a many issue, positions that were far to the left of Jason Carter, and she got seven hundred thousand more voters. Right. You know, so if you're talking about a 200 vote spread between the democratic gubernatorial candidate and the, and the Republican gubernatorial candidate, and you've got 700,000 votes out there as a universe to be talking to, to me, it makes a hell of a lot more sense to be talking to those folks. I agree. And then I also think that like you going back to our earlier part of our conversation, you got to throw the old playbook out. The old playbook does not work. That old, you know, um, you know, pre-2002 Dixiecrat, you know, collaborative, collaborative that, that, that was kind of strung together just does not exist. Um, you know, the notion that we have, you know, white liberals and progressives, you know, marginalized, voters from marginalized communities, and maybe, you know, our, our quote-unquote conservative Democrats, you know, blue dog dims, I mean... You know, that's that's what we're talking about. And if there's, a you know, the common interests, the common goals, everyone can get in line where they get in, where they fit in. What I feel like to some extent, too, is that when you're when you have this conversation about electability, it's not that um, Stacey Abrams is not electable. She's electable. People vote for her. You just got to vote for her. Right. Like the I, it, I sense like an anxiety uh, in these spaces that people are no longer or they, they fear a loss of influence and power that may have once been more plentiful. Um, in a similar way that we see some on the far right, the, the alt-right types, you know, with this fake, you know, white genocide. So they talk about, not saying they're the same group of people, but the anxiety around power shifting and who is in control. It just seems like to some extent that whether people are conscious of it, there is a fear of a black woman being in charge not just, and not that she hasn't been in charge, you know, she's, she, was, she was the House Minority Leader, but, like, being the, the top dog head honcho as governor, like, there just seems like there is just this uncertainty about where people fit in in a world that has Stacey Abrams leading at the helm. And this doesn't make folks bad people, but I really implore folks to really dig deep and figure out what that is, you know, because this notion that she can't win and they won't say what it is, but it's obvious when you say Evans can win, but Abrams can't, I mean, or one is stronger than the other. And you just look at, you look at their resumes, you look at their backgrounds, you look at their policy positions. They're, they're, they have a lot of similarities, right? They both have a lot going for them in terms of both of their upbringings and they understand the struggle in terms of rural poverty. I'm like, it's not like you have one person who always grew up with, with wealth and access and the other who didn't, right? Like, so it's not even like that's the, even the, what we're looking at here. Because you'll see it mentioned a lot that Evans has that rural background. And you'll see Abrams mentioned as having all these national, you know, elite connections, which she does. But that's because she's worked to network and build that greater, you know, 
a support system. Because let's be real, it's very different to be a person of color trying to run for office in this country. You know, like, so it just seems like there is a double standard there, but also there is this anxiety that folks aren't really dealing with because there's been a way that people have been used to do th- doing things in terms of who gets to run statewide and who just backs out. I remember I was saying to you before um, we were talking previously offline that I didn't realize Jason Carter, 2014 was the year I moved here. I didn't realize Jason Carter had ran unopposed in the primary because um, I moved here in time to register to vote and we, I voted in the general. But like, even that type of stuff, right? Like no one, I don't know that anyone would dare say that Jason Carter, you know, who who had this political lineage already in place was not how, you know, why would he run? He's not, he's not capable or confident. I mean, maybe people get to that, I don't know. But there are those people who get to be in positions and they have relationships to others. Like there are folks who will swear up and down Evans is the most capable, competent and qualified person for governor but really, what distinguishes her from Ab- from Abrams besides the fact that she has support from, you know, the last few set of that dying dem generation that lost the seats in the first place, and she's white. I mean, we we have to be real and honest about what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worse actually. Um, I think it's 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 it, it's it's a it's sort of time to sort of throw the gauntlet down around the question to these folks who are progressives. And I, I mean, I have some friends so out there who have this position. So you're, you know, I'm saying this to people that I know and respect and love and work with. But if you uh, insist now, right now, that that Stacey Evans is, is more electable than Stacey Abrams, you really need to do some self analysis and really dig into why you think that because it you know you can't have that position uh and then and at the same time know the facts that are out there you know i mean know you know and if you're somebody who's in you know reasonably involved in sort of progressive politics or democratic politics you know this stuff mm-hmm. you've seen the polls you know the fundraising reports you know that every single progressive constituency in the state and virtually all of them that are national in scope that have some sort of relationship to this state have endorsed Stacey Abrams. So the, 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 the sort of totality of it all is, is pretty overwhelming evidence. And to take, you know, the position that uh, you think Stacey Evans is, is you know, somehow, you know, by any metric, a better, uh, more, a more electable candidate or somebody who's more viable in the eyes of Georgians, then, you know, you're, you're motivated by, by either conscious or subconscious uh, biases that you're, you're not willing to come to terms with right now. And you really, people really should. People really need to, to look at that and um, be willing to, to get out of that comfort zone because it's really damaging progressive politics. I mean, absolutely. And if we're really going to continue moving, you know, Georgia ahead, when we're looking at the legislation that's coming out of, you know, there's been some okay legislation, but when we're looking at some of the legislation that's being proposed, that's being pushed, that's being um, championed by those running for statewide office right now, it's, it's scary to think about the, 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 the state that they're trying to take us back to. Um, and, and I mean, we both know that this type of stuff, this type of animus is not like because of Trump, 
but there certainly is an emboldening amongst certain people now that it's openly okay to target, harass, discriminate against people. Um, again, it's stuff that has already happened, but we, we really need to have the resources. We need to make sure that we're informing and educating people about how, you know, we need to be committed to providing opportunity for all because that makes our state and our citizens, you know, more productive and happier and healthier and better contributing members of society overall. That's what we should be wanting for a Georgia. Like, I just think back to that that silly ad from the Republican Governors Association. They're just like, you know, uh, what is it? Whichever Stacey or whatever Stacey is, is bad for uh, Georgia. Because, you know, they're like, whichever Stacey wins, it doesn't matter. They're bad for Georgia. And they're right. Both Stacey's are bad for their Georgia. Because their Georgia is a Georgia from a time that we need to be leaving behind us that we don't need to be resurrecting at all. Both Stacys are bad for that Georgia. However, only one of them, at least right now, with the way their campaigns, you know, their work and the way they're messaging and pushing forward and organizing is really trying to take, instead of holding and balancing the, stand, the status quo, is really trying to take us to another level. And it just seems to me, and I know you and I have talked about this before, that Stacey Abrams is the one to take us to the next level statewide. The fact that she's she's black, I mean, it should not be used as an excuse for people to not support her or not vote for her. And that's not just reality. People need to be challenged on that head on. No, that's, that's and that, that you said it uh, better than I, because I, I, I think that uh, that it's it's becoming... It's a real. It's it, the the only way that we're going to kind of get the kind of um, uh, unity and and sort of uh, consensus and uh, behind uh, the nominee is if people are you know basically challenged who who are uh, spreading this stuff because I mean it's look there's people out there that just sort of spend their time doing this all day long you know calling up people trying to put questions into people's minds. Um, trying to dry up resources. Um, I heard um, uh, one one campaign uh, operative of um, you know people like calling other campaign uh, organizations and saying, "Well, I understand that you're going to have to give to both candidates, so, but I'm just asking that you don't max out to Stacey Abrams." If, so, you know, that kind of stuff going on is, and, you know, who, I, hope, I hope whoever is, do, is doing that stuff is, uh, hears this, that you're destroying our opportunity to win this election because you are simply trying to prop up a failed strategy that, is, that has lost us elections over and over and over again. It's time for you to get out of the way and let the people who have winning strategies uh, get out there and win this thing. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think, you know, for, there are folks who, who will say things like, oh, you know, rumors and gossip. Like, let's just be real. We all know how this game is played. We all know how people, you know, whisper and hush and backroom deals and what happens in corners and stuff like that. And a lot of times, you know, there, there, there's more truth to it than not. Um, but we need to continue to be vigilant and having good conversations and get out there and talk to people. I am actually really looking forward to talking to you after next week when you start your new position. So that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I guess, uh, 
you know, I haven't even said this out loud on any kind of recordable media yet. So you get the first uh, shot at this. You get to scoop some folks. <laughs> as of next week, I'm starting to, uh, as the Southern Region Political Director for the Working Families Party. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be um, basically building a program and a, a campaign here in Georgia to uh, help Stacey Abrams, who uh, Working Families Party has endorsed, uh, to help her win, but also to help these progressive candidates win down the ballot and really uh, play to the ma- maximum role we can, the role of doing what we, what, what we were talking about earlier, which is, is really reaching those, those voters that, uh, make, and making sure that they feel like they have a reason to get to the polls and then helping them get to the polls uh, you know, on election day. That's that's great because we definitely need that real investment. You know, people will say, "Oh, the outside groups and and try to scare folks," but 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 Georgia Georgians are. You know, I lived in West Virginia for several years, and now being here in Georgia and getting to hear people's stories and learn and know more about history and just people and communities and stuff. There are some amazing and fierce and wonderful fighters here, but folks have been really challenged and for lack of a better term, screwed over by institutional power in many ways, in many communities. And we need to have investments in good organizing to help people understand that they're not alone. We've had too many good people all up and down the state who've had to, you know, hold the finger in the dam or fight the battles by themselves. And so it's really exciting to see working families kind of, you know, venture this way in a more meaningful way. And and not just that they're supporting Stacey, but that, that they're willing to, to, to put some funds and, and having you on on board so that we can get some really good work happening in and around the state. So I'm pretty excited to see what you guys will be be doing and looking forward to opportunities to volunteer. That's going to be fantastic. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for, for taking your time out of your afternoon to join me today. Um, yeah, we definitely should connect more once you, once you transition into your new position. Uh, but I look forward to more conversations with you through the rest of the campaign cycle because these are conversations that people are not willing to have out loud. Um, and it's definitely not coming from, you know, some of the more mainstream media outlets that we have access to. So um, folks listening, please like, share, 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 share. Uh, and definitely check out, there's a link in the, the, in the, in the description to my other interview with Eric. So um, definitely check it out. Definitely share and look out for information on how to get involved with Working Families. Uh, is it Working Families South? What is the exact name? Yeah, uh, yet to be determined. <laughs> working Families we're, yet we're, to be we're, determined. We're, we work on it. Project, but we may we may uh, initiate uh, like a state affiliate. Oh, okay. Um, okay, that, that would be, that cool would be too. an on the ground organization that people could actually join and participate and build chapters. Uh, in, 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 in Georgia. So um, that's, that's, it's not that, that, that the, the confusion of it was, we just haven't uh, gone to that level yet. So, but that, that is uh, our intention is to build an organization that's, you know, on the ground uh, beyond need. election day. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely what we need. And that's going to be powerful and will carry us through 2020 and beyond. So I'm really excited. Eric, thank you so much again. I um, appreciate talking to you today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks.